0: Wrong, would it be wrong to kiss? Sing, I feel like this? Hi, this is Sex and Ethics, and I'm Sharon Lamb. And, and I'm and Madeline Broke. Hi, Madeline. Thanks, everybody, for listening to us today. We're coming to you from our different... Places where I'm visiting Austin, Texas, where it's uh, beautiful this time of year. And Madeline uh, looks I'm to in, me like she's in a garage somewhere.
1: <laughs> I am not in a garage. I'm in New York City at a pod hotel. So they have some bunk beds in here. So I've made my own little recording studio on the bottom bunk with some blankets. Well, that's beautiful cool. here. You have, you have enough room? Yeah, um, I think so. My feet hang off the bed a little bit, but it's mostly very comfortable.
0: It reminds me of those sort of things that you see on murder t v shows um where everybody's store what do you call those storage things, those garages that people rent?
1: yes, um storage units or storage pods,
0: yeah, yeah, wow. You're being stored in a pod, but obviously you can come and go as you please.
1: you know that's a throwback to how my partner and I met. You know that right, Sharon.
0: When no. I met my
1: partner, Bob, he was working as a manager of one of those storage facilities.
0: And were you storing something there? No,
1: I just met him at a bar. A fun fact about storage units, they actually have managers that live on site. So he took me to a storage unit <clears throat>
0: the first <throat> time I went home with him. Very interesting. Candlelit dinner inside a garage. <laughs> kind of, Yeah. Oh <laughs> well, I was wondering if people, you know, if it expires and the people who work there get to, you know, keep all the cool stuff.
1: Yeah, they do. Or they can auction off the items like on that TV show. So oh. I think the mattress Bob had was like a Tempur-Pedic king-sized mattress he got that was still in the bag because someone left it behind in an
0: unpaid unit. Oh, huh. cool. And uh, was it a good mattress? No. Yes. We're not moving it. that. Okay, well, today we're going to be talking about something that I just have a lot of curiosity about. It's because uh, we're both members of the Association for Women in Psychology. And I was noticing at our latest conference that when people talk about gender, they also start talking about sex, not just sexual orientation, but sex too. And I was kind of wondering why this gets all convoluted. So maybe it's good to just start out for our listeners with the idea of this um, distinction between sex and gender, and whether it still holds or whether, you know, queer theory has uh, torn that all down. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I would define sex as in these historical conversations as largely being based in biologic ways of thinking. So looking at external genital appearance or uh, looking at reproductive organs and then sorting people into a binary of either male or female, although intersex folks do exist. Whereas gender is something that we quote unquote perform to borrow from some of Judith Butler and queer theory, how we live out the gender that we identify with. So for me, I'm a cisgender woman. And so I perform certain kinds of femininity, but I don't perform all kinds of femininity.
0: Well, that brings up the question of what you mean by perform or what I mean by it too. We don't mean like consciously performing, but we kind of mean it too. And and now we're going to go down a rabbit hole. What is oh, this, yes. What does this mean about performing gender?
1: <laughs> I think that's such a great question because for folks who are cisgender and whose gender max- matches their sex, it's really confusing to think about there being a difference. But when we say perform, it means like, why are you making the choices about how your gender affects your appearance, your behavior, and the way that you think. So if I were a cisgender heterosexual male, I would probably not wear a dress, right? Because in our society, performing gender as a man means you always wear pants. You don't wear something that is like a dress. Um, There are obviously exceptions to that. But when we're thinking about some of those choices, that's what we mean when we mean perform, at least in my mind. How do you define it?
0: I want to make a distinction between performing and conforming because Mm. performing means you're doing it for the outer world. And definitely, like if you're if you're doing that kind of dress for the outer world, you're saying, I am a man, you know, look at me, I am a man. Right. And definitely when you're when you're doing that also, you're conforming for yourself and your internal view Mm. of it. So it's not everything is for the performance of everybody else, right? Or what or is i um, am I using it sort of, I mean, conscious or unconscious. Some of it is performing for ourselves, which might just be, well, it's not always conforming, because you can perform for yourself a different nonconformist performance of gender. I am so confused, but straighten me out now.
1: <laughs> well I think we can acknowledge that, like, the choices that we perform are influenced by other people and our society, right? I think there are ways that, like, I have conformed to femininity to keep myself safe. When doing the kind of research before we recorded today, I really reflected on, like... I would describe myself as like a soft femme in terms of gender presentation. That means I dress pretty femininely, but I don't engage as much with makeup or high heels and other kind of trappings of femininity. And in some ways that is conforming, right? Because I'm a fat six foot one woman. And so like often people need to feel, see me be visibly softer. I've gotten the feedback a lot that like the way I dress helps people approach me because I seem standoffish otherwise. But I also just really straight up like wearing dresses. Um, I like swishing around in them. I think like wearing crinolines, is just fun, right? So I don't know if I can disentangle conforming and performing for myself. There's so many sources that kind of motivate me to perform gender in the way that I do.
0: Okay. Okay. So, I mean, we could go on for a long time about the way we perform our genders and what's conforming and what's play. I'd even call it custom. Cosplay, costume play, or whatever. Yeah. But let's get back into this idea of sex and 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 gender. It. I don't think that people are using that that way anymore. And, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that think that to get out of the binary and to welcome into a realm of what it is to be any gender, you can't have that distinction anymore. Yeah. Is that
1: true?
0: Okay. I think so.
1: You know, um, I think a lot of the reason we end up, like, confusing sex and gender is because of cisgender heterosexual people's inability to detangle themselves from the idea of the gender binary. And I realize we should probably define what the gender binary means, because not everybody is, like, knee-deep in these theoretical conversations as you and I are. How do you define the gender binary, Sharon?
0: Well, um, that there are only two genders, right? Right. That it's yeah. male and it's female and that everything else is a variation on that. Just like there are only two sexual orientations. There is heterosexual and there is not heterosexual. Yeah. <laughs> and many people have been pushing um around that. And and I think conservatively there's pushing, there's pushback on that. Mm-hmm. But I want to say that I'm very excited about this. I don't understand it quite, and that's why we're talking about it. But I'm very excited that we're in a moment in history where something that just seems so natural and normal is getting blown apart. And I understand that I don't quite understand how to talk about it yet because I'm a product of my history and I'm a certain age and, a you know, certain, you know, I've been... What is it, cis? And I've mm-hmm. been hetero, and I'm, you know, I'm stuck within that. And yet, as a, you know, as a philosopher and psychologist, I'm just blown away at thinking that there's this big change, and I want to live long enough to see it. But what is this change? The change is about non-binary individuals mm-hmm. and the widespread diversity of uh genders that are coming about now that that's making gender not just a performance but re- but well maybe it's always a performance but it's relating to body parts too because we're in an age where you can change your body parts right mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter what you're born with i mean yeah. what does it matter what uh, kinds of things you were born with if you don't believe in god and it's not god given and yeah that sort of thing and that you don't think it's a problem that people can change things about their physical appearance with surgeries. I mean, I certainly don't think it's a problem when we're addressing some of the, you know, cancers and diseases and other things Mm -hmm. that that, uh, modern medicine will change. So, you know, I'm not very articulate, and I'm really glad to be speaking with somebody who's younger and and more part of the queer community about this. But I just want to say that I think we all need to be open about a brave new world, and maybe wary about some of the changes, but also just very open to what the future might bring. Yeah, I, I want to mention—I've mentioned this before—that I love this. Uh, I was it a Heinlein? I love this Heinlein book or short story where I think that people were two genders within themselves. Uh mm-hmm. huh and that when it came to reproductive times, they would change, they would, and who they were with, they would change to whatever gender might fit. Oh my gosh, how beautiful. You know, so it's not a new thought. It's just like science fiction is coming to be. So anyway, I mean, we're not even talking about sex yet, but tell me more about how you see all the differences in gender that are coming out. Do you see them as performances in that sort of choice and agency or performance light that our performance unconscious sort of to that this is i'm i don't know what is that unconscious way people perform that people are conforming to new options i guess
1: Mm. I guess I want to also mention that, like, as a 33-year-old person, I am now no longer on, like, the cutting edge of these discussions, right? A lot of this work is being led by folks in Gen Z and Gen A, which are the generations below me as a millennial. And,
0: Gen Z. And what is what is Gen A? Um, Gen Z is folks who are
1: under, like, 25-ish. Wow. Right? So basically from... I think like 27 or 28 to about 20. And Gen A are all the folks who are like under
0: 18 right now. And they are. And they're so hostile towards um, me for not understanding right away everything they're doing.
1: (laughs) I know, right? Like they don't have, they really struggle with compassion for like, hey, I grew up in a different way. And like the undoing takes more time for me. One of my favorite podcasts, Keith and the Girl, they talk about this as the sorry you're 40 conversation of like, (laughs) like you just you gotta recognize that things have moved on since like you were born and sorry you're 40 it's time for you to refresh everything right so i think like in many ways like trans and non-binary people are leading the way to liberation because they're exploding our ideas of this gender binary. There's an author that I'm going to quote a couple times when talking about this. Their name is Nicholas. So there's a paper from 2014 and a paper they also did with Clark in 2020. We'll give y'all the links to both of those papers. But essentially, they argue that the goal of non-binary folks is to deconstruct and replace the role of sex or gender differences in order to in order to move away from binary opposites to a more androgynous mode of thought and multiple becoming. The Nicholas uses queer theory to critique essentialist notions of identity and suggests that feminist praxis can be used to consider a non-foundational ontology of potentiality. So I know that had a lot of $5 words in it. Potentiality.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, here's a little point of contention, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And that's a, Isn't it? isn't it a problem to be just hanging things on identities all the time? Because isn't identity kind of essentialist? Oh, Mm -hmm. we don't agree then. But um, I think so. This is the language that, that they're using, right. That, that because people are claiming certain identities and protections for that identity. Yeah. So it's not as fluid. It's just a, uh, uh, it's almost territorial sometimes, not saying that in a negative way. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I, I wonder how much of this is, because of our definition of identity, having to be fixed and static.
0: Oh,
1: You know, which is something I think that is honestly influenced by my privilege as a cisgender person, right? To me, I can read a quote that kind of articulates this better, but essentially like non-binary folks are non-binary because they recognize the fluidity of how they identify, think, and present over time. So today I might want to perform more femininely and another day I might want to be masculine I had a client who talked about this as um, they described themselves as a demi boy. that most of the time they were a boy, but once every three months, they had like two days where they wanted to be a
0: girl. Okay. So, but aren't you just reinforcing some of those gender stereotypes when you, yeah. um, when you're, even if you're temporarily claiming an identity, mm. it seems to be, I, I, I I'm of two minds of this. One, it seems to be reinforcing uh, those uh, gender essentialism kinds of characteristics, mm-hmm. like to be a girl means to wear makeup. And you're playing around with it. So it undoes um, it too. Yeah. Um, when I saw, when I went to buy some makeup, because I guess I'm a hard femme, is that what you would call? It? <laughs> yeah. You're a soft femme and I'm a hard femme. I'm a soft femme. femme. You're a hard femme. I don't really believe I am because internally ever since I was 20, I always sort of thought of myself as half male. I think mm. <laughs> I think that's because I'm um assertive as uh, and sometimes a ah. So I've always called that male, which means that you know I'm considering not being so female, which is just totally stereotypical and wrong. Mm-hmm. But you know, I grew up thinking that. But, you know, so I was buying some makeup and the man, well, I don't know, see, I don't know, but the the person who was there selling me uh, makeup looked to be a tall man with gorgeous long hair, beautiful mm-hmm. makeup, and, you know, nails that were like, you know, like, don't touch my face because you're going to poke me in the eye. Oh, long, like, fabulous ones. Yeah, exactly. Kind of thing. And uh, they looked fantastic really. And I wouldn't say, oh, they're, they're, they believe that being female means having long nails and makeup Mm. and long hair. I would say they're riffing on it. They're riffing on it it needs to be female. So to that extent, I don't think it's essentializing, but I do worry about the essentializing component.
1: Yeah. I, I, I share that concern. And so I think this, There's a quote from one of the Nicholas articles that I wanted to share, which is the problem is that the popular concept of gender currently is what you believe you are, aka an identity and how you present yourself. It's not relational. It's not social. It's not structural or institutional, but purely personal. And to me, including like relational, social or structural kind of ways of subverting gender, really changes this conversation, right? Because if I identify as a non-binary person in isolation, there is not as, that just like has to do with like personal choices about how I present myself and how I act in the world. But when we tie it to relationships, the way our society is structured, that I think allows us to see more of this like gender critical ways of thinking of. Wait, no, uh, I'm
0: not getting you. Say, let's get this. Let's get the simple version of this one. Absolutely. Uh, Or the over
1: 60s set. Essentially, like, gender is not a core aspect of the self. It is all about performing. But in order for it to be truly liberatory, it has to be be defined as something that we are undoing in relationship with each other. So, like, by existing as a non-binary person and having relationships with cis people, you are having a relational undoing of gender.
0: Why? Why? Because you need somebody to see you in that way. So it's, it's about the mirroring of the self. And so it's what makes it a relational undoing instead of a first person authority. I say I'm this. And so I am this. It, it doesn't necess does it need somebody to have that relationship with you and see you in that way too?
1: Yeah. I think it's because like, you can't self-identify your way out of oppression, and that's why it has to be relational. Ooh, say that again. You can't? Yeah, I don't want to claim that as my own. I picked that up from Nicholas, but uh, okay. that means that you should all read your paper. But you cannot self-identify your way out of oppression, because just the way that you identify does not change the fundamental power structures in our society.
0: Okay, well, let me ask you this. Why... Is it incumbent? I mean, is it morally, ethically incumbent upon us to respond to a person in terms of their uh, chosen performing identity of the moment? Mm
1: -hmm. And why?
0: Why is that an ethical obligation? Mm. Yeah, ethics. (laughs) I mean, this is where the rubber
1: always meets the road, right? I would say it is an ethical imperative to recognize and support trans and non-binary people because they are the folks who are at the cutting edge of undoing the gender binary. Like I want to support the people who are most radical because they are able to see the world in ways that I cannot as a person with all of these privileges. So I think it is an ethical imperative for any person with privilege to look at to look for how marginalized people exist and see how we can undo these oppressive systems within ourselves.
0: You look confused
1: you're by that just, answer. You're just
0: sort of saying openness, right? To greet people with openness about who they say they are, and that's yeah. an ethical obligation because it seems presumptive for you to say who they are. Yeah, I, I know some a couple who thought it was presumptive to assume their child's gender, and so mm-hmm. they their child or but I don't think they let their child choose I think they let the daycare center <laughs> kind of probably yeah form because there's a world that sees you in a certain way too of course yeah um what how, what does this do for you when it comes to sexual orientation um mm. so let's separate well first what is sexual orientation is it really an identity or is it a disposition as What is it? Robin Dembroff says um, a disposition to want to have sex with certain people over others, but not exclusively necessarily. And that we're all on a continuum. Like you were more so dispositionally moving towards that. I think,
1: you know, I think I tend to side much more with the latter. And I think that's based in my own experience of being non-monosexual so that means I'm attracted to people of more than um, I'm attracted to people of all genders basically not just cisgender men and I think a lot of folks in the bi community and the non-monosexual community talk about liking people not parts
0: Um,
1: (laughs) which is like
0: separating out the sex and gender kind of thing so it's like yeah and 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 even sort of sexual orientation is like is is conferring on to another person some solidity of who Mm -hmm. you're attracted to without without that necessarily being so. Mm. I mean, I I think sexual attraction is a very funny thing that it's hard to predict and that people might not know themselves very well. And Mm -hmm. maybe because of that they want to foreclose on uh an identity and maybe it's because uh for political reasons you you dig da- you dig your heels in on an identity in order to advocate for rights because you have a certain political feeling for the you know deservingness of those rights of so, but perhaps i don't think it will be but perhaps it will be the way of the future that people will just be attracted to people the reason why I don't think so is because um, we're always shaped by the culture in terms of who we're attracted to. That's my view. I don't, yeah. I don't believe you're born with a certain.
1: Oh, I feel lots of complicated feelings about the "born this way" argument, Sharon.
0: I know. I just maybe we
1: need an. We need a whole episode on that,
0: possibly. Okay, let me just clarify why I don't believe in "born this way." Okay, I. I it's overstated that mm-hmm. there are many pathways and for everything, there's a combination of nature and nurture and that just because it's not born this way, doesn't mean it's changeable. I think that's thank yes. issue. I think that there are some orientations or ways of feeling aroused or sexual attractions that are virtually unchangeable. You're not going to be able to change it. They but things can become hardwired without you having been born that way. Absolutely. I mean trauma hardwires you to of course, certain things. It's biological, but you don't necessarily you're you're born to develop certain fears and certain uh uh hatreds. Preferences, yeah, given everything. Experiences. Right. But so that's my um anti-born this way argument. Um I so yeah. I,
1: you a bit. Um, I feel complicated about it because I think it was effective politically, right? It kind of separated out whether or not being queer was right or wrong. It, it just is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was a step in the right direction. But I think we're starting to see the limits of that with the current attacks on trans folks and how people actively perform gender. Um I want to throw in here some statistics that I think might complexify our discussion. So do you know that over time, more and more people in each generation identify as LGBT? So Gen X, the generation above me, about 4% of people are LGBT. And that's the case for, many fo- uh, for the folks in the higher generation. So um, boomers, silenced uh, generation, folks like that. But then when it comes to my generation, about 10% of my generation, millennials, are LGBT. Guess how many of Gen Z folks are LGBT?
0: Well, more than 10%, I guess. Is it
1: like 20% up to? You're right! That's according to the most recent Gallup poll. And the most common sexual identity is bisexual in their generation. So in some ways, like folks of Gen Z and Gen A are already kind of undoing these binaries simply by how they identify And that's the case even when it comes to trans folks. So, 12% of people, 12% of people 18 to 34 identify as something other than cisgender, but 6% of people who are 35 to 51 identify as people other than cisgender. So, this is happening for both sexual orientation and gender identity.
0: I, I have such a moving feeling from that I, it's I do so too of, of some other people of my generation but it brings tears to my eyes to think about that sort of um development of uh, that of of young people sort of it just feels like openness and I don't mean yeah. like liberation It just feels like I'm open to other people. I'm open to discovering things about myself. I'm going to probably settle down in this world with Mm -hmm. one person, probably that seems to be the way, you know, globally. Yeah. No, but you know, there's, it really undoes a lot of uh, things that have caused political problems and trauma for a lot of people in the world to just be, I mean, whether, and I don't, don't want to say people are, claiming that identity politically, I think that they've been given the option and that Mm -hmm. they open to it so they discovered things about themselves. Yes, I think is as a developmental psychologist, what's lovely about it.
1: I a hundred percent agree. When I heard about this, it was I had the song like the youth are a future from the sixties and seventies. That like goes through my head all the time that like would you like to give the world a coke? Keep it um, company? No. I don't need to give the world a Coke, <laughs> but I do feel like they are less hampered by some of the things that like you and I grew up with and yeah. took for granted. And it's really exciting to see this openness positively influencing
0: young people. So the the one worry that I hear from people of my generation who have been mm-hmm. feminists for a long time, who seem to be maybe forgetting their whole Belief system about uh, gender as as constructed, and that's the worry that because sexism still exists and because misogyny still exists, mm-hmm. people will leave the category of women and female, and they'll make themselves more male like in this non-binary kind of way, and forget about the rights and you know of uh, girls and women around the world where this kind of openness maybe isn't flourishing quite as quite as much i i i argue with them but i uh-huh. see i see why they're worried you know i i think that there's a mindfulness about that in the new generation and i certainly see the new generations fighting for abortion rights for equal rights and pay and for all the you know anti rape i see all of the uh-huh. All of the feminist things that we were fighting for as being carried forward, and I don't think there will be no more girls, no more women. Of course not. (laughs) There might be a um, there. There are workarounds from oppression, and some of them aren't the best workarounds, but they are fighting the oppression of women and girls. Yeah. You agree? You do agree? I agree.
1: And, you know, I think inherently, like, undoing any power structure is inherently messy. Mm-hmm. Because a power structure says there's only one right way to do things. And so in order to find out the right way, the new, more liberatory way, we have to get messy. We have to try a bunch of things that, like, won't necessarily work. I want to bring in some some of the thinking from Thompson. That the traditional gender binary is a tool with which cisgender men uphold their own supremacy and that wider acceptance of non-binary people into feminist circles will serve to challenge this power dynamic. And then she brings in Simone de Beauvoir and she says... In this kind of power hierarchy that we've created with the gender binary, man represents both the positive and the neutral, while women are relegated to the negative, only defined in terms of their non-maleness. But they point out that when we expand our definition of gender to include a sliding scale between male and female, as well as genders that fall off that scale entirely, the cisgender man does not lose his status as the self, but the other only grows larger until it swallows easily over half of humanity.
0: Wow. I um, in some way, that's, that's um, arguing the case of the people who are worried about the disappearance of women and girls, mm-hmm. um, right? But the thing is that the people in power, cisgender, white, heterosexual men, mm-hmm. um, aren't going to be the ones who are going to expand their group. Exactly. Right? And it's sort of incumbent on women and girls to say, yeah, come on in you know we even if we have to change the whole house and the whole structure of it we're exactly it's we're in solidarity with each other and when you're in solidarity with each other against oppression you have to change you don't you don't hold on to some of those old yeah stuff. so beautifully said
1: Oof. yeah change is hard though it's <laughs> so hard And I think so many of these disagreements between gender-critical and trans-exclusionary feminists um, can kind of be boiled down into this thing that I'm borrowing from Alok Vedmanan. Basically, they said, like, the reason that you're not fighting for me as a non-binary person is because you're not fighting hard enough for yourself and how you have also been influenced to perform or identify as a certain gender, right? Like resistance to the idea of non-binary folks is only kind of showing how many wounds around gender that individual has.
0: I just had an idea about it because I know that a lot of the people who are um, uh, resistant, um, like it boils down to being um, called out about not using the right pronouns. Yes. I mean, that is such a, you know, touch point or whatever that word is. And it's And when I think about that, it's sort of saying, acknowledge I exist, (laughs) acknowledge who I am, as I am. And the other and the people who are annoyed are saying acknowledge I'm old and it's going to take me some time and don't be so mad at me all the time in that way. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of a generational there's a kind of a generational thing that's happening around the pronouns that's working against its own end and solidarity. Maybe it's what you said before about not having patience with people over 40. Anyway, I, I had an insight and then it just escaped me, but I want to go on and sort of talk about identity of, of asexual and the idea of romantic attraction. Ooh, yes. Why do we need an identity of asexual? And instead of... Something else? Well, instead of... I'm attracted to this kind of person, but I don't want to have sex with them or something. I mean, why do you Mm -hmm. have, why is there an identity about wanting to have sex or not? Lots of people go through periods of their life when they don't want to, and you don't know how long you're, I mean, if you're fluid, you don't know. So what, what, what is the fight that's happening about acknowledging asexuality? I think
1: similar to non-binary folks, my understanding of the asexuality um, kind of movement is to question the concept of this relationship escalator. So the idea of a relationship escalator is something that was posited by Garen in 2017 in their book. And they say that um, the relationship escalator is the traditional bundle of social norms for intimate relationships, monogamy, cohabitation and much more, ideally until death do de- you part but obviously um, that focuses on romantic relationships and families that you've created as the sole kind of organizing force in our society and i think many asexual people are saying like you can have intimate relationships with people other than your romantic or sexual partners acknowledging that things like really intimate friendships and other kinds of relationships exist and that to be whole you don't have to have a romantic relationship
0: well, that's powerful, and I never heard that before. It's really about it's sort of pro-intimacy instead yeah, of, info, right? right? Oh, I get it because the it seemed to me like they were taking away the fact that many people don't want to have sex at different times of their life, and and mm-hmm. that you know, and that their identity might be wrapped up with being whatever heterosexual or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they just don't want to have sex, before. yeah.
1: <laughs> Which and in be some bad.
0: ways. And you don't oh, have to have an identity. It should be fine. There's no right to sex. There's like the incels would say. Yes. No obligation to provide it. Though some philosopher I recently read, uh wrote that there is an obligation to provide sex for hmm. some relationships. I think if marriage is about that, which I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to write a whole paper, but I, oh I yeah.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And I think in some ways, like, the name of asexual kind of contributes to that larger confusion, right? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't say, like, pro-intimacy in all your relationships, right? That's not a snazzy one-word kind of description. But I do want to say there's been some really interesting literature that's come out in the past, like, year year or so. And that it indicates that, like, asexual people are relatively... Constant over the course of their lifetime, in not having a lot of interest in um, sexual fantasies, very rarely masturbate and tend not to be in romantic relationships. But asexuality can also be an umbrella term to encompass other identities like demisexual or gray sexual, um, which are all like kind of different configurations of intimacy, sexual attraction, and romantic attraction.
0: But well, based on what we were saying before, and this this whole discussion is a little too complex for me to follow. I hope our listeners can follow some of it too. But if we're talking about undoing categories that are sort of rigid and that last the whole life, isn't asexuality and that that statistic you just said kind of supporting that mm. view?
1: I think I was trying to articulate more that, like, for many asexual people, their disinterest in having sex is relatively constant, but their identity doesn't necessarily have to mean that to exclusion, right? I think it's more about, like, so as a queer person, I talk about, like, I am, I've had more relationships with cisgender men than I have with cisgender women. That's just, a, a like, a fact of my own sexual experiences, but for many asexual people regardless of how that may vary over nope i just lost my train of thought
0: let's go let let me just say that it seems to me that the same viewpoint should be applied to them as being applied to everyone else that mm. it, that um the reason why it's been consistent over a lifetime is because it's been conceptualized in a culture that says sex is vital to our being, that you are different in some mm-hmm. way. Like the binary has been part of our culture. And yeah, so It seems to me that that people want to be consistent and they choose labels to say, who am I because I'm slightly different than other people. So that when you start to open the categories of of sexuality, as how much and how little people want how it changes over a lifetime, and there isn't an expectation then the category of asexual seems to me a shutdown rather than aI'm temporarily asexual, and who knows what's going to happen here or there mm. i guess i'm i I guess I'm kind of you know that part that moved me before was the openness, the not shutting mm-hmm. down of possibilities, and you and I are both therapists, and that's what we appreciate. We love that. In terms of 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 transformation of people that nothing is you know we will applaud identities and knowing mm-hmm. who you are and we want to keep people open all the time. Yeah. Like I overvalue having uh sex or anything like that. It's just that it seems against purposes to to fight for that one. Oh. Yeah, I
1: and that. I think You know, we were talking earlier about how the youth are our future, and I think one thing that, you know, is a little bit brain-breaking for me, um, who's grown up in this era of identity-based politics, is it seems like Gen Z and Gen A are moving away from identity politics and more towards action-based politics. We don't care about what you say or how you identify as much as what you do.
0: Ooh, that's very Greek and and uh, and Foucauldian too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you say or you are or you think you are because your culture is going to form that. You're going to pick up on discourses, and you're reproducing every time you resist them. You're going to reproduce it that discourse anyway. So what it matters is how you act and what you do. And for me, the bottom line is act ethically, and I think that I—I I don't think that's fluid. I think mm-hmm. that—I mean, here we go, where I'm like saying, no, don't believe in born that way. Nope, don't believe in essential gender. Don't believe. I do believe in in fundamental ethics and being good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because and I think it's not just about harm; it's also about respect and, and autonomy. Yeah, and care and community and obligations. Mm-hmm. I don't say I know what the ethics are for any particular group or any particular person. But I think there are wrongs and rights to be figured out that um, that will cross over universally to some extent, certain ones.
1: Absolutely, right? Because as much as I think you and I struggle with like systems and societal structures, like we recognize like the primary societal structure is relationships. And like your utmost duty is to like be the best human you can with the folks who are around you.
0: Oh my God. You have to watch the TV show Beef. <gasps> I
1: downloaded it. I'm so excited for it. Oh my it. God. It's I so love well. the
0: comedian who stars in it. Go ahead. Oh, she's an amazing actress. All the people in there are amazing actors. And it's one of the most meaningful TV shows that's been around about rage and about Mm. identity and about class and about ethics and humanity. And I don't want to give anything away. I
1: smell an episode on beef coming through. I'll watch it all a second time just for that
0: episode. Okay. (laughs) Okay.
1: Because from like the limited sampling I've seen, it also kind of addresses like gender and anger and race and anger and like so many complex societal things that we've touched on in our show thus far.
0: Well, I, I do want to thank people for listening to this whole episode if they stuck with us and you know, allowing at least me to think out loud some of my work out loud, some of my thinking about um this. It's really in progress. And I apologize if I offended any asexuals out there or others through my thoughts or, or the born this way crowd. Um, I've offended before, but I'm always open to conversation and that's what's good about this uh half-male, ag- aggressive, fully argumentative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, next time, I hope we can talk about faking orgasms. <laughs> Ooh, yes. About performance and how that plays a part in uh, sex and ethics. Is it a little lie or is it a big lie that hurts all of humanity? <laughs> in mm. particular? No big deal. Just
1: orgasm at, orgasms at their highest stakes, right? Hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, any final words you want to say about sex and gender? Great. It's been a really
1: good conversation and helpful for me to continue to undo the gender binary in myself.
0: Well, I really appreciate where you are, even though you're not in the newest way of thinking. But I think you're more in touch with the Gen Zs, and you know, I didn't even know there was a Gen A. I, really... I didn't until last week. Okay.
1: Oh, <laughs> this is the beauty of being an educator. Your
0: students will always update you. Yeah, yeah. you know, that's one reason why I don't want to retire. Because when I go to dinner parties with people of my generation, I feel like I'm on a different wavelength about what's going on in the world, because I'm hearing it from students, Mm -hmm. you know, or eavesdropping from students, because some of them aren't even going to, you know, say it out loud to me anymore, because I project Cis hard femme, did you say it was? Uh cis hard had around mm-hmm. white, supremacist, whatever. I got it worked on that.
1: Well, <laughs> that's partially some assumptions about, you know, about you based on their past experiences with folks who have similar identities to you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh people like me have to be a little bit more outspoken about our openness mm-hmm. to learn and to learn better and learn harder and faster in the time that's left us
1: yeah <laughs> I feel that pressure all the time and I'm so grateful for my
0: students dragging me along like one of my students made me get on TikTok oh my god I've been so PC during this that's I know nobody even says that anymore but that's my that's the, that's my uh, peer group right now but mm-hmm. I embrace I embrace it all and I want to learn more and I'm really grateful to you and I'm grateful to Dan for doing this editing, and uh, hope to have a lot of fun talking about faking orgasms with you next time. Yeah, thanks everybody for tuning
1: in. Uh, we always welcome feedback, and thank you again, Dan. And
0: our, our sign-off always is: Be good. Those <laughs> of us who haven't heard other episodes, I'm doing an imitation of ET. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.